What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Logos Podcast. This is Max. This is Joey. On today's episode, we got a lot coming your way, but as you may have noticed, there is a special guest with us, Dr. Matthew Ramage. How are you, doctor? Excellent. Thank you. Well, guys, before we get into introducing Dr. Matthew Ramage more intensely, profoundly, in some of his works, Joey, sales pitch him. We got to give the spiel. First of all, welcome to Logos Podcast. If you're new, Max and I are seminarians studying for in the Roman Catholic Church to be to be priests. So we're here to introduce you to the... Wait, that's what I'm doing. Is that, are you doing that too? I, I am doing that actually. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, we're trying to introduce you, our listeners, to the beauty and truth and richness of the Catholic spiritual and intellectual tradition. So welcome. Um, if you're not new to Logos Podcast and you like what Logos Podcast does, you can support us by going to patreon.com slash logos podcast and there you can become a monthly donor to this project you can donate five bucks yeah a month you can donate 10 bucks a month i think you can just do a one-time donation too Sure, you can you can also make a donation through our website and we also have tiktok instagram uh youtube youtube channel hopefully you're watching us checking us out on youtube um so do all that stuff know that you're in our prayers as always but as we always say, we'll pray for you more if you give us your money, so, <laughs> which is, of course, a lie. So, um, yeah, we're super excited to have Dr. Ramich on. Um, Dr. Ramich, maybe you could just introduce yourself a little bit and tell us who you are, um, where you work. Like, yeah, we're, we're like, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, no, I'm a cradle Catholic of 40 years. I live in Atchison, Kansas. My office overlooks the Missouri River Bluffs right behind me. It's extremely beautiful, beautiful. Benedictine campus. Uh, and so, yeah, I've been a theologian here out in Atchison, Kansas uh, since 2009. And uh, I just love my job, get a chance to interact with all kinds of Catholics at all different levels. Uh, like you said, I, I specialize in Bible, but also I spent a lot of time in the theology of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI. Right. And I've written you know, various books and different things uh, on his work. And the reason for that really is kind of like in the Middle Ages, how Aquinas synthesized the tradition. Mm-hmm. No one should pretend to be on the level of Aquinas. Sure. But <laughs> for the modern period, there's really no one who holds a candle to Ratzinger, who spent essentially six decades helping Catholics understand the faith better from the time as a private theologian mm-hmm. to an expert at Vatican II to the head honcho of the former Inquisition, the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith under John Paul sure. II to Pope. And his interests just happen to overlap with mine. So whenever I have a challenging question or issue, it's just sure. uncanny how time and again I go to this guy and he has some insight. So yeah, that's kind of why think, you see th- me talk about Ratzinger. Sure. And I think we've all experienced something similar. Right? Yeah, I know, I know I have, yeah. You know, and so actually, and as a matter of fact, he is a guiding theologian before, be, you know, behind our thesis, mm-hmm. MA thesis and, mm-hmm. and stuff. And so obviously that's one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on, Doctor. It's because Ratzingerian thought, Pope Benedict XVI's thought is really your kind of specialty, along with his biblical her- hermeneutics and the way that we approach scripture. Um, and as such, we know you to be a biblical scholar. We know you to be also an author, a professor, and a family man. Is that right? That's right. We are expecting yeah. our seventh kid in April. So that our house, so things awesome. are pretty busy. We have, <laughs> oh, I guess, nine homo sapiens. We've got about 13 dinosaurs, that is to say chickens or bearded dragon. We just adopted a second stray cat. 
It's a pretty yeah, interesting life. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it's oh it's pretty gosh. cool. Yeah. Are you a cat guy? How do you feel uh, as a father? I'll have to say, seven here's something interesting about me and Benedict, actually. I'm a cat guy, and so was Ratzinger. Oh, wow. uh, nothing against that dogs. I don't mean to me. alienate your listeners. Yeah. Uh, but I will say two things about dogs. Oh, three things. A, I admit they're an objective good. Be careful, good. Doctor, do- doctor. Be careful. Okay. This is they're dangerous. objectively good. This is dangerous. They're objectively good because every creature created by God is objectively good. Right. right. And they reflect God. Uh, and I think they are more personable than cats. Uh, and there's truth to the Babylon Bee from a few years back when Pope Francis said something like cats, dogs are going to heaven. And Babylon Bee said that cats are going to hell. <laughs> I, I, I acknowledge that to be the case if you had to have judgment. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm a cat guy. Yeah. Wow. Fair enough. Wow. Okay. I, before we get into the topic, I actually have a question for you about Ratzinger. Do you think Pope Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger, is going to be a doctor of the church? If I had an over-under on it, I don't know what it would be, but <laughs> I would not be surprised eventually. If it was very soon, I would be surprised. Sure. Yeah. I think yeah. I agree with that synopsis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's good. So guys, I hope so. <clears throat> hey, I think we do too. Mm-hmm. And if I find it difficult to not at least, yeah, be seriously considered for such yeah. a thing, for such a title. But doctor, let's dive a little bit into the topic, which we'll be discussing. Guys, the topic we're going to be discussing primarily is going to be, well, I should say the facet of our conversation is going to encompass a lot, mm-hmm. but we're going to start with the discussion on the reliability of scripture, right? Yeah. We obviously hold it to be sacred. We hold it to be true and revealing to us the person of Jesus Christ of God incarnate, right? But like, how do we justify that? Exactly. <laughs> right. And so like part of it is like, okay, so we as Christians, as Catholics hold the scriptures to be reliable, um, but it also implies that there's a good God hi- guiding it, formulating it to us, revealing it to us, and then ultimately being our source of life. Right. And, but then as you begin to read scripture, as you're oftentimes asked to by a pastor, by a friend, whatever, you quickly kind of engage some difficult passages in scriptures, mm-hmm. right? Abuse, slavery, murder, violence. Yeah. Right. I mean, some are, some of salvation history with Abraham, even in the painting behind Dr. Amage right now, right? It's pretty, pretty, could be pretty grotesque sometime to, to think about the imagery of what goes on in the Old Testament and some of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so you're all of a sudden, faced with this question, wait a second, how can you say that the word of God is reliable, life-giving, but then also have these seeming contradictions and also an overarching theme of death guiding the discussion? Yeah, yeah. And I think right? I think this is a question that a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, deal with and like have to confront. Is like, my, my sister actually once asked me, you know, very just like inquisitively and like, she's like, Joey, a lot of religions have sacred books. How do we know that the Bible is true? How do we yeah. know that the Bible the is Jews the Jews of Torah, God? the Muslims of Quran. Right, exactly. And then, so like like you said, Max, given that, what, what do we make of all these dark passages, quote unquote, dark passages in the Bible? Dr. Ramage, I'm curious, before we get into it, like, um, is this a question that you encounter a lot of in your, with your students, like in, I don't know, efforts of evangelization with people you're interacting with? Where, where do you yeah. see this question come up? Oh, it's a great one. You know, it's kind of funny. I envisioned myself in becoming a theologian, much like my mentors at a public university, uh, going out and being the lone wolf, you know, uh, and a lone ranger maybe is the better image, and going out and bringing the faith. I'm at a Catholic place where I'm a dime a dozen, you know. Uh, interestingly, yeah. I don't encounter that a lot. 
Not because it's not common. It's just that I'm in such a Catholic atmosphere. It's kind of funny mm, that yeah. I actually have to raise the issue for people usually because they're so <laughs> trustful of Scripture in a good way that they're not yeah. going to be able to evangelize because they don't mm. even know what people are objecting to. So that's the positive of a Catholic culture, but sure. it's the negative if you don't ever initiate people. So one of our uh, colleagues around here says that, you know, we don't want to be a bubble, but we want to be like a greenhouse. You know how you, you gradually expose plants out to the elements, but mm. within a context of security. Yeah. Wow, so yeah, I don't encounter yeah. the question yeah. as much as I would if I was out in the world, if you will. But uh, I, I, what I do find is my Catholic students resonate with realizing that the tradition of the church is essential here. The Bible doesn't yeah. come stamped with right. the words inspired of the Holy Spirit on each page. Mm -hmm. sure. uh, most of them have not thought about how the canon came to be and why we believe in these so, uh, yeah, while it's not a common thing I encounter, I definitely raise the question for people. Yeah. And I would say that's, that, that theme has been kind of generally my experience, even in seminary, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we're pulled out of kind of the modern world in a certain way, certainly out of modern education in a certain way too. All of a sudden we're investigating philosophy and theology and just like the liberal arts and classical arts become kind of a, a at least a, a common theme and discussion. And we're kind of stretched to question some of the premises we've held for so long as, well, it's just the word of God is what we do. Just we given, we, we yeah. pray, we just, and God is there. Uh, but it's like these, these bigger questions, which are good questions even, right, doctor? I mean, these are good questions to ask yeah. and to pry into um, that, you know, like we, and, and to be fair, asking these questions can be difficult in general. Asking good questions is not something that just comes naturally sometimes, you know? And so, anyways, it's not surprising that in a certain in certain atmospheres, this question is not investigated thoroughly. But the hopes is that this episode will kind of prompt questions as well as answers, um, at least to investigating that mm -hmm. topic of discussion. Yeah, it's, I'm just thinking now, in light of it's a very Ratzingerian thing to do is ask these difficult questions. Yeah. Maybe that yeah. you know, f like for Christians that lead them into this deeper investigation of the truths that they yeah. already hold, you know, in their in their hearts, but like help them understand more. So, okay. With that, doctor, yeah. I'm going to propose to you the question that my sister proposed to me. Why do you think the Bible is true? Why do you think that the Bible is the word of God? You know, that is the first time I think I've gotten that question on a podcast. So here's, <laughs> uh, that's good. Let's go with this. All right. I think of this in two ways, a negative side, a positive side, the reduction okay. of the absurd, and then the, the positive proof, if you will. Sure. Okay, so when I think about the truth of the Catholic faith, including the Bible, I, I, I've studied many different religions, uh, philosophy, etc. And frankly, uh, I, sometimes part of my answer is, to whom shall we go? Uh, there was a nun in college, very pious, lovely nun, who was Orthodox, absolutely, but said, you know, I'm Catholic because it's the least ridiculous thing I've seen. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there's truth to that. that yeah, it's not like yeah. we're without our problems in the church. It's like we've solved every question. But uh, the idea is that I, I can pretty well study the Quran and tell you that that was made up several hundred years after Christ. I can do the source mm. criticism of it and show you which sources it's drawing on, even though it claims to be directly divinely revealed. Uh, Book of Mormon, similar yeah. Uh, now, with, with Hinduism or other ancient religions, they're not making the historical claims we make, like sort of the, the myths oh, of the ancient Greeks yeah. with Hindus. Insofar as they contain truth, which if the church is right, they do contain some truth. 
it's perennial truth. It's it's not like, you know, there's a claim about you must believe Krishna did blank, 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 or else Hinduism yeah. is false, right? Sure. So Christianity, right. for better or worse, uh, it sets itself up as, in some sense, falsifiable. And, uh, and this, uh, so people raise like the problem of evil and whatnot. So, but by, in summary, that first part of my thought process is, I do try to give other arguments a fair shake, and I I just don't see anything else that has anywhere near the truth. But this is very. Ratigarian and Jusani of me. And Max and I have talked about Jusani before. Actually, Joey too is reading Blessed Luigi Jusani's works as as we speak. Currently, it's in my backpack. Not right as we now. speak because we're in this interview, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the the idea is that the only way to truly see its reality is by living it. Hmm. Benedict has this phrase, I ended up writing a book on it. Uh, primarily, I write to myself and then hopefully to my students and, and readers, but it's called <laughs> The Experiment of Faith. Like you only know it by living the experiment. And he invokes kind of in the, the line of Jusani, a scientific analogy that the observer has to enter into the experiment. The, the way you prove it is in the laboratory mm -hmm. of life. Uh, I do encounter oh. this. I'll get random emails from people. How do I know the Catholic faith is true? Not on the Bible specifically, usually. I think a lot of Catholics have this assumption that we ought to be able to prove it with 100% infallible sure. certitude that is beyond all objection. Yeah. And without falling into a fideism that you see in sometimes non-Catholic circles that you just believe it even though it seems false. Nevertheless, faith is not faith if you think you've proven it. Mm -hmm. So there's that mm -hmm. element of trust and love that yeah. does go in. And, you know, I think with the Bible... I look at X, Y, and Z. If I live the biblical Sermon on the Mount, right? Yeah. Does that fulfill me or not? Sure. If I am challenged to, this sounds so mundane because we use it all the time, but if I really love my neighbor as myself, right? And that's, that's one of the main ways yeah. I think about it. But also, and I'll pause and let you guys say something else, but we should probably also talk about the role of the magisterium because that's pretty crucial in there too. Right, and I and I think as we got to the discussion, I, it's important, and you you've kind of been building on this this tension that we oftentimes find in Christians and non Christians alike. The critique comes: well, you just follow this because the church, your grandmother, your granddad, your uncle, your mom is telling you to mm -hmm. follow this stuff, right? And so we would say that's kind of a, a faith approach, a fideistic, strictly based off of faith mm -hmm. approach. But then there's also the other extreme, right, which we've seen in other branches of theology and philosophy, and just in popular culture alike, is to say, well, if we can't prove it with science. Science and with history, then we need to dismantle it and discard whatever tradition and be connected to, right? And so you have this kind of immediate tension between faith and reason posed, right? As if they're in contention with each other, and and in the way that we approach scripture, that that contention is all the more explicit, right? Um, and so obviously, as you as you're kind of alluding to here, the magisterium, what it does is help us guide through that, and Ratzinger being a great example of that in a more immediate kind of history. Yeah, and I'm thinking. So I guess before I ask you about the magisterium and its role in helping us understand scripture as the word of God, just the, the comments you made about the experiment of faith, living the experiment. I know in my own life, when I first got to seminary, we started praying the liturgy of the hours, the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And I like, I read the Psalms and they just meant nothing to me. I was like, this is strange language. I can't relate to it at all. I don't like it. it. It doesn't nourish me spiritually. 
And um, one of our priests who was here, another biblical scholar, he gave a formation conference to us on the Psalms. And I was like, sweet, this guy's going to like, he's going to give me the secret to understanding these. And then they're going to start to nourish my spiritual life. Basically his conference was, you just have to keep praying with them and you have to keep living with them. Hmm. And it's crazy. And I've been in seminary for six years now. Now the Psalms are like, it's like my go-to, like I love like the liturgy of the hours. It's not just like a thing I have to do. It's like nourishes me. It's like spiritual reading. It is. No, it is. And you start to, so one of the reasons the Bible is true, the Psalms being an example of that is that, or one of the reasons we can sense its truth is because it corresponds very close, perfectly to our experience of living the human life, right? Like it it actually does answer the questions that we have and, um, like sometimes, like even if it w- if it wasn't a Bible, you could look at a thing and just recognize it to be true based on its correspondence with reality. And so there are definitely yeah. like a plethora of things within the right. Bible that you're just like that is true. Um, so that's that's one way of kind of getting at this question. Oh, that's terrific! Yeah, it corresponds to man, and and you could always turn the argument around and say, well, it just satisfies what you want to satisfy, right? Yeah. But the thing right. is, if you're a realist at all, if you think the world we live in corresponds to what we have in our brains and vice versa, then yeah, what does fulfill us is likely true. And, and it's, it's fascinating that Catholicism doesn't have a dichotomy between fulfillment of humans and what's true, unlike some thought systems where like you should do the thing that makes you miserable. Sure. Yeah. Or we like, like Buddhist ca- faith, you know, right? Nirvana, like detach yourself from anything that's earthly because that's necessarily evil and keeping you ungrounded in reality, right? So you have this kind of notions in other faiths. Actually, it makes me think of something that's somewhat more on topic. It's not a dark passage exactly, but some Gnostics and other ancient heresies, you know, they, they took the scriptures so literalistically, they didn't understand genre that they would do things like mutilate themselves. Mm. Uh, and because they didn't understand hyperbole when, it, when Jesus was speaking sometimes yeah. in that way. So it's like there was this hatred of the earth and the, the happiness of the human that Catholicism embraces. I, I'll quote Chesterton probably more than once today, but he said something <laughs> like Catholicism is a a good beer and a steak or something like that. You know, it's like nice. it's it's meant to fulfill us. And uh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and I would say, so, so what Joey's saying is true. Like obviously how the only way, like, there's not only one way to assess reality. It's not just through a scientific historical lens, right? So it's like our experience actually does tell us something about reality because reality encompasses a human experience. Yeah, does yeah. that make sense? So like man in his rational capacity is able to actually engage it through also his sensual capacity. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, corresponding to this outer thing he calls the world, outer thing he calls truth, right? That's given to him. But also there is a sense where these truths that are, if you will, kind of universal in our experience come to a grounding through community, right? Yes. So like Joey's saying, there is one sense in which the individual is placed here on his emphasis and Joey's like, I, how do we know the scripture is true? Because I know it to be so. Mm-hmm. I know the person that it's showing me. But also yeah. what Joey's experiencing is similar to what millions of others are experiencing, if you will. Here's the, the emphasis on, it may seem like by experience we mean sentimentalism or feelings. That's not what we're talking about necessarily. Right. It's our engagement with reality, that like, yes. yes, Joey's experiencing it, but 
So is Max. So is Dr. Ramage, right? And all of a sudden now, it's a community of people consulting and arriving at this thing we call universal truth, right? And so, but part of that also includes the magisterium, yeah. right? Which is a tradition that 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 teaches us how to be guided in this living tradition of the scripture. So it's not like we have just a scripture on their own as some historical scientific textbook or as some book that just tells us stories, but we have also a tradition that helps us guide and shift through that, right? Could you, yeah, doctor, could you talk teach us about magisterium tradition, how these things relate to our understanding of the Bible as the word of God? Yeah, I'd love to pick up on that. There's an image someone taught me once upon a time I've been using the past 20 years, which is to think of scripture, tradition, and magisterium like a three-legged stool. Without one leg, the whole thing falls down. And St. John Henry Newman, who I'm sure you seminarians have studied to some extent, he became Catholic, sort of the most famous intellectual of the late 19th century in England. Yep. And he realized that there is no Bible without the church. The, it, the church mm-hmm. gave us the Bible. It was the church's liturgy, primarily the criterion by which you determine whether a thing out of the many hundreds of possible texts belonged to the Bible. And, and that the church is the one that helps us interpret it, always has done so. And when you have a debate, if you don't ultimately have an earthly authority granted by Christ to adjudicate it, it really is a free-for-all. And yeah. it, I would add what, another layer I was thinking about while you guys were just talking. It was, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of work the past several years in faith and science, which is its own other topic. But yeah. if you look at human history up until very recently, tradition has played such a crucial role. And I was reading an author just this morning uh, in my morning reading who was not Catholic, but quoted Chesterton's fence. And that's G.K. Chesterton's Hmm. fence. The idea is that if you see a fence out there and you want to remove it, you better know what it was there for before you remove it. Hmm. Don't just go up and uproot stuff. Hmm. And the idea is that those who came before us might know something we don't. And mm. the church's magisterium is a constant gift and reminder uh, of, as Ratzinger puts it, that the truth precedes me and it's greater than me and I need to enter into it. Yeah. I don't actually grasp the truth. It's supposed to grasp me. Mm. And what a gift we have that the magisterium, you know, not, not always speaking infallibly, but when the push comes to shove, we have this great gift of the human community encapsulated uh, in that magisterium bestowed by Christ. Right. And so, and always remembering here that like the Pope and the bishops are guided by the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes it infallible in that sense. It's like we have this tradition that's been handed to us because God entrusted it and chose that way to do so. And the ordinary means by which humanity now receives salvation. Right. And it's interesting, um, just a little, little, thing I wanted to talk about. I've been reading a Joseph Pieper tradition mm-hmm. I think I've heard tradition it. on concept and claim, which we've talked about a lot on this episode, on this uh, podcast. But one of the things he talks about, Doctor, and maybe this is a book that if you haven't read, I, I recommend um, to consider. Joey, too, I think you'd, you'd like it. Uh, you know how to read, right? I'll, I'll which read Pieper book is it? Okay, it's fine. It's, a, it's called Tradition, Concept and Claim, okay. Joseph Pieper. Um, but one of the things he talks about when he's talking about the importance of tradition, it's a, like... So he kind of builds, at least in the on the former half of the book, he talks about tradition in the kind of the Hellenistic tradition, mm-hmm. right? So we have like these philosophers that have been kind of passing down different writings, different ideas, Stoic philosophy, kind of reaching modern man. But then we also have this kind of parallel line that is like the Christian tradition, 
mm-hmm. right? And the, dis- the, the differentiating factor between, between a, if you will, a secular tradition and a Christian tradition or, or a religious tradition is the source of that tradition, right? The source of philosophy, for example, and Ratzinger talks about this in his introduction to Christianity, yeah. is human reason. Yeah. Right. So it's it's the reason first that sparks us and propels us into kind of reality. Mm-hmm. But but I think his point is Joseph Peepers is that the Christian tradition is kind of the other way around. Reality, it's like we're propelled into it. Mm-hmm. Right. And the source of Christian reality is Christ, Jesus Christ. He is the yeah. source of of what we call reality. It's something that had to be received. It wasn't something exactly. we could make up for ourselves. Exactly. And it's not something yep. we can reach on our own accord. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, po- pointing to what kind of what you're saying here, doctors, the emphasis is here placed on the tradition, which tells us about the reliability and the credibility of scripture, not just in some narrative metamorphical sense, but also historically, right? We would say that like his like scripture is also historically grounded, mm-hmm. not to avoid that discussion too, because I think that's important when we talk particularly about the person of Jesus Christ who the scriptures are foreshadowing and now completed in. Yeah, I mean, this is a cool conversation. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I thought I'm having, I think when my sister asked me the question, ultimately my answer was, why do I believe that the Bible is true, that it's really the word of God? And my, my answer ended up being because I believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God and the community that he founded and the scriptures that they used were inspired by the Holy Spirit because I believe that he was the son of God. And a, a, I think a common rebuttal that would be, well, you only know Jesus because of what's in the Bible. So isn't that circular reasoning? And the answer is, no, I don't only know Jesus because, what, because, what's, because of what's in the Bible. Like there's the tradition of the church, which is much broader than scripture itself. So um, and scripture is a data point. Scripture. Yeah, yes, right. exactly, exactly. So yeah, it's the community, it's the it's it's all of that. So um yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Anything okay. to add doctor to the yeah, to I, I, I would thoughts, add something. Yeah. We could we could never even get to dark passages, but I will add one more thing on that. There's so there's a theologian at Vatican II, Eve Congar, who helped with Dei Verbum sure. on the word of God. And so to your point, Joey, it's uh where we think of what basically what scripture is, is it's tradition that crystallized at a certain point in time that the church needed to record for posterity's sake. And it was providential because we started getting all kinds of crazy apocryphal gospels and the Quran that made up all kinds of stuff about Jesus. So you have yeah. that fixed point. But yeah. I love how Congar puts it. The church couldn't wait to live until she had scriptures, you know. And so really the <laughs> liturgy, I, I love like from a seminarian yeah. priestly perspective, it's like, the liturgy is the primary locus of tradition, and like like you said, it it, it would exist even without the scriptures. Uh, it's a gift to have them, but technically they're not necessary uh, in yeah. that sense. They're a gift, like so many things God does. It's not necessary. It's just sure. a great gift. Okay, so the scriptures are a gift. Yeah, they're true. Yeah, and and they come from a God that apparently loves us. A God that's good. Um, but we find some, when we go to scripture, we find some weird things in there. And so this is often, (laughs) this is often the, the next step in people who are struggling to wrap their heads around this, like, okay, maybe scripture is the word of God, but like, if that's true, what kind of God do you have? Cause this book is weird. Like the Bible has some crazy stuff in there. Yeah. Like God asked Abraham, this man to take his son up this little hill what they called a mountain, a little hill, to sacrifice his son. 
that doesn't seem like a God I want to be worshiping. Right. I mean, again, you know, looking at that painting behind you, doctor, but even like the book of Joshua, for example. Yeah. Right. We yeah. have, I mean, the word annihilation is used, right? Don't salvage anybody kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So maybe what we can do is, um, so these are famously called the dark passages of sacred scripture, right? Yeah. Um, and what we wanted to do, doctor, because I know you've done some, maybe some work thinking about these things is maybe just ask you about some of these particular passages in scripture, maybe give us like step back and give us a broad hermeneutical key for understanding some yeah. of these dark passages. And yeah. then maybe we will, um, uh, get into some individual ones that people sometimes have hey, just, just problems a, with. Just a plug here for uh, Dr. Ramage. He also has a book on this, which we'll link below. If y'all want to mm-hmm. check that out, which by the way, doctor, I used in one of my research papers. So shout cool. out to you uh, for teaching me how to kind of guide me through Joshua. So thank you. Anyways. Um, but yeah, maybe doctor, if you could start with a broad hermeneutic, like an interpretive lens, what do we, what is a Christ- Christian supposed to do when he encounters violence or something that seems contrary to a good God in the Bible? Yeah. This is where the gift of the church really shines through. We have mm-hmm. the catechism, we have Vatican II, the great biblical scholar, Pope Benedict to look to. So actually, yeah, that dark passages in 2010, he wrote a letter where he called on theologians to address this. That kind of prompted my first book. And essentially my broad overview is beginning with the first principles. Again, this is assuming somebody's already living the faith. I am not pretending that this would convince someone who isn't yet convinced. That's a whole other topic, right? But I'm thinking more of the Catholic who's struggling or just sincerely wants to know. And that is, you have to hold your two first principles of biblical inspiration, that it's given by God, and that it is without error in what it properly wants to teach us. So those are the two kind of key Catholic doctrines with regard to Scripture. Now, within hermeneutics or interpretation, there's a few principles the Catechism gives us. you got to look at the whole of Scripture the whole of tradition, and then that magisterium, if they have any authoritative yeah. sayings, right? So uh, I, I have found so helpful over the years, Pope Benedict is basically ripping off St. Irenaeus from the early church and the catechism, I think it's paragraph 53, if my memory serves me, teaches this thing called divine pedagogy. It is that the Old Testament is the history of God teaching Israel, the fullness of truth to prepare them for Christ. So we have to remember, as Benedict is constantly saying in his work, that the fullness of truth only is in Christ. It doesn't mean the Old Testament's bad or false, but it's a witnessing of our family history develop. Mm. Uh, So if you're looking at any individual thing that seems contrary to what we know by reason or to Christ, you have to place it within that as a moment of the teaching, much like yeah. with us, right? So, like, I think of teaching by kids. I, it's just hilarious teaching kids, right? It can be frustrating, too, but I have a kid right now who's <laughs> picking up piano like that. She loves it and just picks it up. Uh, wow. When I first started learning nice. guitar in junior high, I was so tone deaf uh, it uncoordinated and every level incompetent that it just took me so much effort. <laughs> so you know, like Joey, I play, honestly, to be honest is with that you. Right? Like once I got dust in the wind, I felt like I was a God, you know, <laughs> and, uh, stairway to heaven, you know? Yeah. But, classic. Uh, 
<laughs> simple man? Did you throw simple man in there at all? No, I actually, no, I littered Skinner, but I didn't do simple yeah. man. I never knew simple man. Okay. But uh, I mean, uh, Sweet Home Alabama, I, I knew. But uh, oh. yeah, so because that's, that's, uh, that's littered Skinner, right? Simple man. That's right. That's right. Simple yeah. Man. Uh, but uh, at any rate, that there's an area, a side note we won't get into, but Benedict was not a big fan of rock music, so he wasn't perfect. Okay. Oh, um, but God, God love him. God forgives him. You well, know, the saints, po- saints are sinners. <laughs> saints are sinners. That makes them saints, actually. <laughs> so anyway, if you look at these dark passages, here's a, the difference between the Old Testament and the Quran. Okay. The Quran, there is no Jesus that is the fullness of faith. So if you have a passage where it says, go wipe out the infidels, which you do, then it's up to your different imam to interpret that. And some are very wonderful and interpret it in light of charity. Everybody I interact with in America here is like that. But there are yeah, obviously others yeah. who don't, right? And with the Bible, though, you can say, what do we know about God in Jesus Christ? And if you heard the command, you know, go wipe out your pagan neighbor's kid, please don't do it. Because we know in light of Christ now, the command to love your enemy even. So sure. that's one starting yeah. point I would, I would begin with. So that's and I this, could go on yeah, and on con- too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this concept of divine pedagogy, I often think like if you, if you were placed in charge of a group of really rambunctious kids. I'd punch them in the face, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, they were hit, they were punching each other. They were like, they were, you know, I don't know, taking out baseball bats and trying to hit each other. Who like are these kids? Are they possessed? They're crazy. I okay. mean, they're crazy. Right, yeah, but that's ahead. like, I mean, the state of man after the fall, like pretty, de- pretty depraved, not totally depraved, but pretty depraved. So what, what you would have to do at first would be like, okay, yeah, you guys can wrestle. Like you can still wrestle. Just please don't punch each other in the face. Please don't hit each other with a baseball bat. Try not right? to kill each other. You it's know? like, so yeah. you would establish provisional rules, right? To yes. kind of, okay, for now we're just going to not punch each other in the yeah. face. You can wrestle, keep wrestling. And, but your goal is eventually you don't want them to wrestle at all. So, but so too, God had to kind of walk. This is the interpretive key that the catechism gives us. St. Saint Irenaeus, Dr. Ramage, you said first, yeah. but they give us this idea of God walking with humanity from this state of terrible fallenness after Adam and Eve in the garden, all the way to preparing us for the fulfillment in charity, the fulfillment in Christ. So, um, that's okay, right. that's that's helpful. That's a helpful um, lens for thinking about these dark passages, right? <laughs> yes, right. So, Doctor, I also have another question for you, and I know this came up in some of my research on Joshua specifically, um, but it may apply to other texts such as Noah's Ark, Sodom and Gomorrah, these other things that are you know questioned and contended with as dark passages in scriptures. Um, yeah. And the idea of, of an omnibenevolent God. How could there be such a thing with all these weird things going on? One of the things yeah. I found, too, was... Um, in the literary rhetoric of some of the authors of scripture, it wasn't uncommon to use hyperbole. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, for those of us who have limited time and don't want to read 300 pages, a really good treatment of this is a chapter in Intro to Christianity by Ratzinger, where he walks through the development of monotheism. (laughs) Of course he wrote about it. So of course he did, right? And, uh, Believe it or not, I like I did my whole dissertation without really getting into that. And, uh, it was thanks to a, a committee member who said, "Why don't you bring in more Ratzinger?" Uh, okay, I'll do that. Wow. But, uh, 
one of the things you, I learned in studying the development of this in grad school, even it, it stuck with me for years and years now is that Israel began polytheists. They were multiple gods. Abraham came mm -hmm. from ancient Mesopotamia, you know, and so he had to teach them that he was the only God. First, they kind of thought he was the highest God, you know, and then they finally sure. got, he's the only God. Then you got to figure out, wait, the devil, how's that work? You know, how is there not two yeah. gods? But he, the, day, the devil is later revealed. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, like you said, there's all these literary devices that we have, in some sense, literally unearthed the past couple hundred years mm. as we've unearthed palaces from ancient Nineveh and Babylon sure. that we have tablets that show us this. It's, you know, the Egyptians and then we have the Assyrians, the Canaanites, they all invoke this kind of hyperbole that we utterly wiped them all out, you know, and mm. it's like historically, no, they didn't. Uh, they didn't leave yeah. none remaining. So it was a literary device and it, it does not solve the problem. But I think it goes some distance to show you a very general principle that's crucial from Vatican II. To understand a text, you have to search the literary genre uh, called sure. literary form, right? Yeah. Talk so to us what's about real, that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so crucial. My wife has a saying. uh she's a theologian in her own right and she mostly oh, wow. is at home. So I get to channel her stuff and like that. She appreciates that. I hope. And I learn a lot from her. Like she'll say the old That's Testaments. So cool. That is cool. The Bible's not a book. It's a library. Uh, mm -hmm. So if someone, you know, came up to you and asked you, how do you read the Bible? Well, how do you read Shakespeare? How do you read Aesop's fables? How do you read the Greek myths? How do you read Jane Austen? You know, uh, the Bible has it all. Yeah. And, and, and so with regard to that, it's tough for a 21st century American, even those of us who think we're, we're pretty bright, we, we live 2000 plus years later, right? In the case of some yeah. of these events, 3000 plus years later. So it's, it's like, uh, there's this evangelical scholar I like, he said, even though the Bible's for us, it's like reading someone else's mail. Like, what is this <laughs> yeah, yeah, letter good. about? Yeah. You've got to figure out the context, who they are. And uh, so, yeah, that could alleviate some of them as far as the genre goes. There's another one. And what we can end up doing, if you want, is I can kind of summarize eventually three or four different ways to do these. But I was for a long time reticent to accept or be open to this position. But it, it was origin of Alexandria's position. And it's since been confirmed or at least supported strongly by archaeology in the form of the Pontifical Biblical Commission wrote a book a few years back called, I think it's just called The Inspiration and Truth of Scripture. Yeah. And it's not making this up, but it's kind of synthesizing that some of those events, uh, Jericho and I, it mentions from Joshua, it, for the archaeologists who specialize in it, who are not me, it seems that if you date this to Joshua, those cities, in some cases, weren't even inhabited at the time. Right. So yeah, right. it's possibly that what you have there is not only hyperbole, but it's sometimes a deliberate anachronism. And so the way Origen read it that I was first not open to was I thought he was whitewashing it. And maybe he is. Uh, there's a Christian yeah. tendency to not want to look at these challenging passages. But he jumped right away to it's meant to be read spiritually. Right. And, mm. and it turns out that might be what some of those were meant that it wasn't meant to be like go physically do this it's like these people don't even exist anymore so you're supposed sure. to wipe out the babylonians or the canaanites in your Canaanites, life. sure 
Yeah, and and yeah. that and, you see from the church fathers, we could go into it. They build on that. Sure, and, and doctor, just a little a little point on this particular one again. I remember particularly Joshua. One of the interesting things is like you know, God was saying like, don't save anybody to Joshua. But then, yeah, can we can we for a sec? Guys, we're talking about Joshua. Can we? Can so this is the ban, right? This is right. Yeah, oh, yeah. so right. So like, what is? So this is the like Josh. God commands the Israelites to go into the promised land and wipe everyone out and yeah. not like kill everyone. Yeah, no, leave, no Canaanites, yep. nobody. Don't leave women. Like kill women, kill children. Don't sure. leave, like leave. Don't kill. Don't leave any animals. Like kill it all. Yeah. So yeah, we're trying to think about how to understand a passage and, like and i believe for, this comes from john uh, i can list a few passages for people if that might be please helpful do, please do. yeah please uh, i i actually i have these all over the place i i wrote down a few years ago and i just will read these out loud so deuteronomy as well deuteronomy 7 1 to sure. 2 you must utterly destroy them you make no covenant with them show no mercy sounds like cobra kai for any netflix watchers <laughs> out there cobra kai uh, Deuteronomy 20, save alive nothing that breathes. You shall utterly destroy them. Joshua 6 That's nice is God. recounting what they did, ostensibly did. We captured all his cities and destroyed every city, men, women, and children. We left none remaining. Hmm. And those are just a few examples that speak to this. So you're saying, before, I get, before we Good, get to yeah. you, one thing that we've established when trying to understand these passages is we have to take into account the literary genre in which they were written, right? Because why? God, but God didn't like use his big spiritual hand and like write the Bible himself. God speaks to us through human, like in human language, right? Sure. In the same way that the word became flesh in Jesus Christ, the word of God is incarnate through the writing of the inspired authors who were humans, who used human forms of communication, yeah. which involved things like literary genres. So when we're trying to understand these texts, we're not always supposed to interpret them literally. We're supposed to take into account the way, the style in which they were writing, and then understand it in light of that. Yeah. And uh, going back to an episode we've done before is on how to interpret scripture. It was yeah. one of the things we've done in our previous episode. Doctor, you can go listen to it. You can be critical of it if you want to as well. <laughs> but one of the things we discussed in that episode, if you recall, is the four senses of scripture. Yeah. Right? And so just just to keep in mind here as we're talking that like the literary... The, the literal literal way of approaching scripture is not the only way to interpret scripture, right? Mm-hmm. And here yeah. taking into account, as, as Joey's alluding to, um, or maybe even being explicit with, that God is 100% present in the authorship of these scriptures, and so is man, mm-hmm. right? And so is man in, in the formulations of these things. But yes, doctor, please. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who knows what you guys said, how much heresy is in that episode. But, yeah, just, just about four um, or five is what I counted. Yeah, but uh, interesting. on that point, the literal sense, here's a suggestion that I came across, someone probably in grad school gave it to me, was the, the literal sense might be better called the literary sense. It's the sense intended mm. by the human author. Sure. So, you know, when, when Jesus says, pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin, that's hyperbole. Arguably, some of these dark passages are hyperbole. But when it says he rose from the dead, that's not a parable. That's uh, actually meant to be a historical claim. Mm. Right. Uh, or a miracle, right? But the parables, well, that's actually a genre of its own. I'm a shawl. Yeah. And sure. it's not like the Good Samaritan would not be false if we discovered there would never happen that episode, right? It, maybe it <laughs> did happen, but you like totally miss the point if you think it has to be historical, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. then building on that, guys, you brought up uh, this, I would build on your idea of the spiritual sense, the, the four senses. So I, I, I would look at how church fathers like St. Gregory of Nyssa deal with some of these. Uh, I'm thinking of 
Pharaoh's army and the firstborn of Egypt. Okay, from Catholic just war principles, you can easily say, okay, no big deal. They all deserved it. But the firstborn babies, mm, come on, you know, like they're babies. And yeah. the way that Gregory and others interpret that is that Pharaoh, his army, and the Egyptians represent your sins. And mm. they're pursuing you. They're going to try to kill you. And everything in Egypt is trying to lead you away from the one true God. So you need to nip it in the bud while it's still small. Yeah. Because otherwise, your sins become full-fledged vices and cause mortal sin. Mm. And that's not probably what the human yeah. author had in his mind, the sacred author. But it, it, God being the primary author, sure. And uh, Psalm 137, yeah, okay, Psalm 139... So- Tons of songs yeah. are like that, right? Dashing babies, dashing heads babies. On the rocks. Yeah, that's yeah. An, it. Really, is an ugly image. So again, yeah. it just builds on the fact that, like, here we have. Well, so one of the ways to to approach is, doctors, you've laid out is div- divine pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Our Lord instructs us through time as man learns, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then, second of all, is to read these passages in light of not only the literal sense but a literary sense, mm-hmm. right? That there are other ways to interpret scripture. Is is that is that right, doctor? That's a really good summary. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, so I'm going to throw some other ones. Again, obviously, these and everything obviously interpreted in light of Christ, too, and in light of the fullness of God's revelation yeah. in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but why don't, I, why don't we throw some other ones at you, Doctor, and just see how sure. you would, like, we're confronted happens. with. Yeah, so Noah's Ark is a big one, and like the flood, the whole story of God wiping out oh, the yeah. entire human yeah. race, except for one person. It's like, how, how do we yeah. conceptualize that? How do we interpret that story? Oh, yeah. I have so many things to say about that. Oh my gosh. But <laughs> Do it. Genesis 1 through 11 is its own distinct literary genre. You can tell when okay. you get Sweet. into the end of 11 and 12, you go to Abraham, it becomes more historical feeling even. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it turns out, I have my students in Pentateuch read this. They, they could see the comparisons how basically Genesis 1 through 11 is in the genre, what the catechism calls figurative. It's just a nicer way of saying mythic. Uh, that it, it's both a mythic and an anti-mythic way of looking at it, like Ratzinger says. And mm. I want to pause on that word myth because how it's so misunderstood in our culture. You yeah. know, top 10 myths yeah. about the church. Myth means falsehood. But right. I yeah. am in great debt. I don't know about you guys, but Chesterton, Lewis, Tolkien, and frankly, JP2 and Benedict, they all use the word myth yeah. regarding scripture, regarding especially the Old Testament. And uh, so myth doesn't mean falsehood. It means the use of the imagination and not strictly philosophy. Mm. So Lewis will Mm. say that, yeah, sure, it contained myth because that's the way humanity learned and still learns, quite frankly. But over time, myth became fact in Christ. Like the word became flesh, myth became fact. So what is it? uh, When you read Benedict, since I mentioned Benedict earlier several times, He's always looking at the images, and he refers to the eve of rib as an image that reveals the complementarity and evenness, equality of male and female, and Adam's creation from the dust and his breath is not, it's not against evolutionary theory because it's not doing the same thing as trying to teach man's connection to all things, but also our uniqueness. And with the flood, yeah, interesting. just to go back to this example you brought up, mm-hmm. uh, the flood, yeah, it exists in ancient Mesopotamian myths. It, when you compare Gilgamesh and Genesis, the parallels are far too many to be accidental. Yeah. And Genesis was written later than, than that. So it's like the, the ancient story the sacred author has inherited 
And yet through this revelation, he is showing the truth behind the myth and correcting the error as he goes along. Scientifically, uh, you know, I, I did a fair amount of undergrad work and I can, I've continued studying science a lot the past couple decades, but I'm no PhD in biology or geology. But <laughs> despite what some Christians will try to assert, there's not any evidence of a worldwide flood that covered every mountaintop. Right. You know, we had we had Pangea, we had a supercontinent, we've had local floods, but if you actually tried to play out the flood on a video camera, it wouldn't work out very well. And so hmm. then you had to ask, as you do of any passage, we haven't done this yet. Vatican II and our popes say, well, when you have a conflict, you had to ask, what is the essential point? What's the author teaching? And you're not going to find an answer in the catechism. This kind of disturbs my students sometimes. But there That's really kind of disturbing is, to hear, though. <laughs> right? Like, there's no answer. You have to believe this as a Catholic that explains the flood. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you what I think. But, again, principles, like the more widely applicable. I go back to Chesterton. He says the Catholic Church is like a big playground with high walls. And imagine you have a mountaintop playground. Like the walls are the dogmas, yeah. the required beliefs that keep you in. And that's good. And But there's sometimes there's several opinions you could hold on a topic. Sometimes the church says, no, you're heretical. But, um, uh -oh. you know, like with regard, if you say the scriptures are not inspired, you're out, right? You got to repent. Right. So, okay. So, yeah, we, maybe we should take the, down the episode. The last episode is defunct now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. But with the flood, you have to ask, well, what's the purpose of it all? Was it trying to do history? I hope not because it's pretty rough. Uh, the sacred author was presumably, in my opinion, much more genial than that. He, he was, he was genius. So here's my wife's take. Let me give credit to Jen. I, yeah. I think she's out, on the right track here. Okay. It's better. It's always good to trust the wife. Right. That's right. But the misses you know, of the world run the world in a certain way. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's the old big fat Greek wedding line, right? The <laughs> the husband's the head, but the woman is the neck. So oh, yeah. she turns the head. Uh, but uh, yeah, what do you learn from the flood story, really? You learn several things. One is God makes a covenant with every creature. This is what I've been working on mostly recently in my scholarship, actually, in my thinking. Every creature is part of the plan. God mm. wants to redeem everything in some way through man. And that, yeah, he, he is willing to go to extremes out of his love and his faithfulness won't die. But to what Jen and I have thought about a lot is after the flood, the same thing basically happens again, right? Noah gets out and sins immediately. Some time has clearly elapsed because he plants a vineyard and gets drunk. And then you have mm, the yeah. whole hand. Classic move. You right, can't blame right? the guy. Yeah, yeah, he's he's exhausted, right? But yeah. the narrative in Hebrew it skips very fast. It presumes a lot of time elapsed, but it doesn't feel like it because it was three verses or whatever. Um, but you learn in there when God says, "I'll never again wipe out everything," that the the thoughts of man, he's evil, right? It's it's like Vatican II that uh, the disorder. John Paul II used to love to quote this is in the heart of man. It's original sin. Yeah. So it's like, if we were to go and wipe everybody out again, it still wouldn't work. I've actually heard Christians suggest this. So why doesn't God wipe all those people out? Well, that's what the flood actually teaches us. The flood is teaching us why he doesn't do that. And it's like Abraham. I don't necessarily want to get us off on that topic just at this moment. But God is, is showing a more perennial truth there that 
he doesn't want human sacrifice. Uh, and that wiping people out in a massive flood is not going to solve your problem. It's the heart of man. And the only solution to that, they don't have yet. They're working there. It's Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Wow. wow. That's, um, so that's one take. You know, I wouldn't pretend that's the answer, but it's right. a sort of option in the playground. It's a jungle gym to go climb on. Mm. Yeah. And I just want to context for our listeners. You mentioned um, Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is uh, another ancient mythical story um, from another Near Eastern country. I forget where. Um, yeah, it's Syria, ancient Mesopotamia. Right? Uh, Mesopotamia. Ancient Mesopotamia. I mean, it's in several places, but Babylon roughly. Uh, and Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is near Babylon. It's this fertile crescent. So it's this culture that the Jews were permeated in that predates Judaism. And then when they were enslaved in Babylon, they would have been immersed in it once again. So that mm. they were constantly confronted by Babylon, Babylon and their myths and their false gods and human sacrifice. And to understand the, the Old Testament context, you have to grasp that it's Israel finding her way, thanks to God, through this paganism to realizing their true identity as sons of God. Yeah. And the fact that we have documentary evidence like of this Epic of Gilgamesh from this Babylonian um, Mesopotamian culture, that's very, it's, there's a flood story in this, in this, Ooh, sorry, in this myth, right? So that's very similar, like you mentioned, doctor, to the flood story that we find in Genesis. So what we, what we can glean from that when we're thinking about this historically is that, okay, the, the, the Israelites were um, writing in this same sort of genre. So we can make comparisons between their flood story that, uh, that appears in Genesis and the ones that were, um, that would appear in other, other cultures, like in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I think I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think I remember from our Pentateuch class that in the Epic of Gilgamesh, God doesn't leave anyone behind. Is that right? Does he just completely wipe everyone out? Uh, he does actually. There's a Noah figure, Utnapishtim. Okay. Uh, oh, so it, it's very similar. The birds being released, the days, it, it's too coincidental to be coincidental. Okay. Mm, and it has other things too. Like there's a snake that steals their secret to immortality plant. And it, it, you can tell it's from the same mm. cultural milieu. And uh, I, I do think it does yeah. Christians no good when they try to pretend they're not related. But it's uh, it's actually more affirming yeah. that uh, yeah. Genesis is an anti-myth. It's taking it down. It's showing this truth that the pagans did not arrive at. Doctor, right. so, okay, so let me throw another example at you, okay? So we've talked a little bit about Noah's Ark and kind of maybe some of the implications of that, theological implications, maybe some central points and even some historical documents that help back up um, and contextualize what's going on there in that biblical passage. Mm -hmm. And another famous biblical passage that <clears throat> oftentimes gets juxtaposed with the notion of a good God when approaching scripture and its reliability is the book of Job, right? See, because yeah. like there is something to be said about somebody like Job who seems innocent and for the most part is innocent. Um, and you have a lot of things come out of the book of Job, right? All of a sudden, yeah. and in fact, I would argue that a lot of people's misconception of how God treats man comes from Job, and they found consolation with Job because, oh, I'm a just person too, and I'm going through it, right? Therefore, so it's like, but no, yeah, maybe what is a good way to approach it? What is, how do we, how do we engage that book that is difficult? And, and, and again, Job loses his family, loses his wife, loses everything, and gets, gets homeless, and 
um, it's getting licked by dogs and really is at the kind of the degradation of human dignity. How can we say that God is amidst that? And at the same time, even allows Satan to be a kind of at the forefront of his demise, seeming demise. Yeah, it's absolutely one of my favorite books, not because it's lighthearted, but it's so profound. So Aquinas mm-hmm. said that the whole point of Job is to be a disputatio, kind of a debate on the nature of divine providence. How can mm-hmm. a good God allow this? And so it presents the opportunity for one to enter into this mystery. I'm going to have to steal a couple of thoughts from Peter Crave, who wrote a really cool, easy-to-read book called Three Philosophies of Life. Oh, yeah. It's on Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. I've seen it. It's really, really good. I, I assign it for a few days in my wisdom literature course. And uh, nice. so the, the thought I'm going to steal from Peter Crave is this, that the point of Job is not to give answers, it's to insert you into the mystery. In fact, the point of scripture, while it provides answers, and the point of teaching, while you should provide answers, and the point of the magisterium, while to provide answers, is to make space for the relationship. Mm. And so, what Job does is, basically, you know, Job complains for 37 chapters, and then God comes around in chapter 38 and answers Job from the whirlwind, but what he says is, and this will be a close paraphrase, Gird your loins like a man, stand up and tell me. And God gets sarcastic with Job. Where were you when I created the world? Tell me, surely you know. And God basically says, you don't know, shut up. And it sounds horrible. Like if someone asks you a tough question, just say, believe that's a bad answer. But yeah, the real point is that as, as Viktor Frankl said of the concentration camps, I think I'm remembering is, you know, you may not know why you suffer, but you can figure out how to suffer. And mm. ultimately, it's Christ who reveals that it's the cross that we're called to join in. But uh, the actual relationship of evil there is incredibly interesting, guys. So Job 1 and 2, the first two chapters, are a prose prologue. And most of the book is poetry. You can tell if you're reading your Bible for the listeners. If it's kind of offset and not even, that's more poetic usually mm-hmm. if yeah. it's plain old writing prose it's blocks of text yeah so in that prologue and then the epilogue it's set up as a duel between god and satan it's almost like god is egging satan on hey you see my yeah. servant job how good he is and and then job's like uh he's only excuse me satan's like no he's only good because you treat him nicely and so god basically <laughs> gives oh yeah job into satan's <laughs> hand right and that's the mystery yeah. of evil. God does allow evil. He allows creatures freedom, including angels, for our greater good. But the this isn't the whole answer, but part of it involves that you don't have happiness unless you have freedom. But yeah. to be free is to be possibly suffering as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I, I think mm-hmm. that's so that's a good approach. Okay, so so a book like Job. So we have Noah's Ark being like, okay, there's certain epics in history that point to possible contacts with the book of Job. One of the ways to approach it, like you said, maybe not the only way, but one of the ways to approach it is to see, well, um, actually God allowed this to happen. And somehow at the same time, God's still showing Job how to be humble amidst his suffering. Is that right, doctor? Am I no, no, that's re- it's really good. It's because we're all Job in some way for lesser or bigger. Some people have immense heaps of suffering, but everybody has yeah. some annoyance or pain and loss in their life. So it teaches us that. 
but uh, also at the end, you know, Job gets everything back. Uh, oh, that's right. And on the Old Testament, so in terms that sounds okay, nice, but eventually as time went on and you got to Ecclesiastes and later literature, they realized that's not a sufficient answer. So mm-hmm. one fun thing about the biblical wisdom literature, like Job and Psalms and Song of Song and all these, is that it kind of has a dialogue, Ecclesiastes, it has its own dialogue in its own right with each other. So yeah. Proverbs mm-hmm. is like, be good and you'll be rewarded. Job's questioning mm-hmm. it. Ecclesiastes just comes out and says, nope. You know, yeah. and uh, so, but at the end, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament that came closer to Christ's time, there's something that you'll see in almost no English Bibles where it says, and it is written that Job will rise again with those whom the Lord raises up. They, eventually, hmm. and the early church That's used the Septuagint version, it was realized that even getting your kids, like new kids back, a bigger house is not going to really make you happy. It's, right. it's ultimately only Next. Christ and the resurrection. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it is cool. The old Testament. Well, first of all, we, we wouldn't necessarily interpret Job as like a historical book, right? It's more of like a, it's like a novella. It's like a, it's like a little novel that introduces these deep questions of suffering and, and God's providence. Right. So it's not like God did this to this real historical figure. Yeah. Yeah, Some people read it that way, uh, but the Catholic church certainly doesn't require it. And most people do don't read it that way who yeah. kind of consider That's a genre. good distinction. Yeah, that is a good distinction. Yeah. I think in general, right. And so uh, just going kind of, okay, so we've talked about some of the old Testament, maybe examples of, of, of ways to, to, to look at some of these difficult passages, but you know, and we say maybe not all of these passages are historical, but as you've mentioned hmm. earlier, doctor, there are some sections in scripture that are historical. And in fact, their credibility in a certain way is at least given to them by this historical example, such as, as you mentioned earlier, um, Jesus Christ's resurrection, his existence, his birth, mm-hmm. um, his area, his dwelling place, right? Yeah. Um, here, I mean, historically, um, his dwelling place is in my heart and in Joey's heart. It's true. And it also- oh, Please God. Uh, yeah, please God. Okay. But anyways, my point here being that like there are some things in scripture that are historical and we're not trying to undermine that, but for these particular passages that are seemingly difficult and contradictory mm-hmm. with this notion of a good God- there are other ways to interpret it and to look at it. And it's not like, it's not like you take a historical, uh, uh, it's not like you take a scripture passage that is historical. And if it's difficult, then you just like interpret it spiritually. Sure. It's not yeah. like a cop out. It's, yeah, it's really out. like, no, we need to, with every single book of scripture, we need to read it as like with the genre in mind, right? We need to read it with the historical context in mind. We need to try to figure out what the human authors were trying to convey. Were they trying to um, explain historical events or were they like in the book of Job or these wisdom literature, were they trying to introduce us into the mystery of these questions, right? So this is, this is our approach to scripture. Um, Doctor, did you have a comment? You looked like, yeah. I mean, just something that occurred to me is that, and then the other thing you have to do is try to live it out. Like, what does it mean, live it out? Don't go wipe people out <laughs> physically. But right, you, right. you do have to apply that spiritually to your own life. And it's like that experiment of faith again, to, to live it and read it in the spirit it was written. So it, sometimes mm-hmm. it's admittedly hard to see how does this directly apply. But really, like when you think about the church fathers and St. Benedict interprets blotting out the babies as blotting out your sins. What am I doing to try to eliminate that in my life? 
becomes an essential component yeah. of how to read it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, and like yeah. we said earlier, I mean, in living it out, you will come to grasp the truth of it all the more, right? As yeah. you enter into the experiment sure. of, sure. of faith. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is maybe one more. That's fine, man. Do it. What if Dr. Ramage is for it? We are okay. For it. One if more. I can do us, one more. Okay, okay, so let's do one more and let's because this is interesting because all these examples we've given are in the Old Testament. And then we say things like, okay, well, all these find their culmination and fulfillment and ultimate interpretive key in Christ and in the New Testament and what's revealed then. But there's also some some, you know, people encounter some shaky passages in the New Testament as well. So I'm thinking of in the Acts of the Apostles, the story oh, of yeah. Ananias and Sapphira, right? These two yeah, yeah. members of the early Christian community who didn't, who held back some of their money from the community mm. and hid that. Yep. And then yeah. it was revealed. And then they were struck down dead on the spot. Which tells you something that if you don't give us and support us via Patreon, <laughs> what God is going to, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go ahead, doctor. But yeah, yeah how acts, do we read? Yeah. Yeah, that's an act. I get my Bible here. Hold on. Um, yeah. Let me try to not block the computer and cut myself off from the podcast here or something. <laughs> uh, but that's Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, right? Chapter 5, verse 5-ish in there. Yeah. Now, this is almost sui generis. It's unique in the New Testament, really. Yeah. Before I get to it, there's a couple that are kind of similar. They're not even purported to be historical so much as theological, but Paul... Uh, I think in Romans 9 through 11 speaks of God cutting off the Jews out of the covenant. And that's basically the idea yep. back from Exodus as well. And you see it in Isaiah that it's like God wants them to fail. And if you took that too woodenly, literally, you get Calvinism, predestination of pe- God wants people to be damned. Mm, but really, sure. Paul's point is that it's providential that the Jews rejected Christ because then the Gentiles were opened to the word. Yeah. And then uh-huh. Paul says, God will eventually weave, regraft the Jewish people back onto the vine. And part of our evangelization job, you know, presumably includes that. Um, but it, so that's something you see in divine pedagogy too, that even in the New Testament, they don't fully have what in Thomistic theology we would call, for example, the distinction between God's active and permissive will, that sure. God's will is sometimes to allow things. He doesn't actually want you to die and fail, right? Yeah, but he's still, and again, in Aquinas' language, he's the primary cause of all things. So even I think of my lupus, I always think about because it's always pain. Like that's God's will. Uh, he didn't like direct my mm. cells to start attacking themselves, but it's part of his mm. plan. Or someone whose child dies, right, or they lose their job. Sure. Um, so with regard, but circling back to Ananias and Sapphira, I guess that's my segue to say that the first century they don't have this distinction worked out. So it's fascinating that in this episode, you do admittedly get the sense that this is not necessarily the case, but the the vibe most of us get from reading it is that basically the Holy Spirit up and took vengeance upon them, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting, though, to read the actual text. And if you go back to it, so you have a few hours pass and Peter says, how is it that you have agreed to tempt the spear of the Lord. Listen, the feet of those that buried your husband are at your door, he tells Sapphira, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down and died. 
This is going to sound like it's weaseling out, but it actually doesn't say the Holy Spirit killed them. Uh, it <laughs> seems like it implies it, but it doesn't actually say it. So that's not nothing. It's, it's again, I, I've, I've got like 30 commentaries. I did this last year. I went and saw <laughs> what I could find. Who, who has some good wisdom on this? And it was interesting that a lot of commentators, very faithful Christians, point out that there's a number of interpretations possible here. And I don't know if I even agree with this interpretation, but let me throw it out there as one that is given. Yeah. And it is that in God's providence, natural causes can work with divine causes. It's entirely possible that this is not God zapping them, but that they literally die of heart attacks. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's a possibility. Sure. Um, Another possibility is there's some direct divine action in that whole affair. And, uh, but what would that look like? I, I don't ever recall Aquinas taking this up, but one way he deals with the dark passages that I'm not fully satisfied with, but I should mention it is that, Hey, sure. look, we're all sinners. You know, we all deserve death in some way. And this life is not the end either. So you could go that route with it for sure. But it, it seems to me ultimately that you have a connection here that Luke is saying, look, Peter has a prophetic knowledge. He can tell what's going on here in the passage and that sacrilege produces death. Those, those like some certainties around the whole thing. Sure. But it leaves the precise causality ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think of how that applies in the magisterium. Sometimes the church will say something and you're like, oh no, I don't know what that even means. But the church has the wisdom to not make a serious mistake with it either. Mm. Even uh, if that means that, that she's not clear on some things, right? Yes. So I'm thinking of, you interpret this historically, which it seems like it means, it's meant to be read historically. I don't see any indication it's meant to be a sheer parable. Um you have like this observation of what happened. And yeah. in some sense, Luke is just reporting the facts that he has in front of him. And then yeah. leaves it open. Uh, and that's kind of the best I can do with that one, guys. I, I think it's much more open to interpretation. That's fair. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember. And this is going to be really unsatisfying for listeners because it's not going to be a full interpretation either. I think I heard once that it's possible that what Luke is doing in this chapter of Acts is because he present. I think he presents the community as like perfectly at peace. He says something along the lines of the yeah. whole community was at peace and he's almost like recreating, I think, a state of affairs that took place in the Old Testament, maybe even the book of Joshua. And he's like kind of... um like now here's this fulfillment of this, this time of peace that existed at one point in Israel's history. And I think maybe something analogous happened and people were struck down dead. So he's like drawing a connection. So the church is like a fulfillment of the community of Israel and the old Testament. Um, again, I don't remember all the details, but that's, I, I guess that's possible too. I guess you'd have to then adjust your understanding of the, the specific genre of acts of the apostles. Is it just historical, a chronology yeah. of events that took place or is, or is it crafted as a narrative that's supposed to, um, yeah, reflect certain theological truths, right? 
Yeah, I, and I'm not entirely close to that interpretation either. It, it sounds like you said maybe unsatisfying because you want to read it all as one coherent, purely historical narrative. But there are a couple other things in Acts that make me wonder sometimes. And you see this even in the Gospels themselves. I, I don't want to get us too far off topic, but there are times when an event that would seem directly obviously historical, Pope Benedict and Jesus of Nazareth, his books on the Gospels, he'll say, you know what, that's not necessarily historical, but as far as we can tell, that's the most likely interpretation. He brings up the Magi in that mm -hmm. regard, in mm -hmm. some of the birth narrative material. So it's, sure. it's tremendously fascinating to see that openness uh, that, you know, that sometimes typology or foreshadowings are brought in. And here's what's certain regarding this. In the Gospels and Acts, you have four different accounts with the Gospels and Acts has further information. But the fact that they don't all line up with one another, this is my Synoptic Gospels class I teach, uh, is like, you can see that there's literary artistry going in by the sacred author. It's not like we yeah. have video cameras here. It's what Pope Benedict calls interpreted history. It's meant to put you in touch with the real historical event, but there sure. also is the literary mastery of the author going into it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess before we offer, do you, I have, I have a little final word and then we'll give Dr. Ramage a chance to make any closing yeah. remarks. Do you have anything to say about any of that conversation? No, no, I think, I think it's important. Okay. What, no, just <laughs> I, guess I think it's important to just keep in mind as you're saying here that, and as doctors kind of emphasize in this conversation in general, that some of the questions that are lingering and that desire to be answered are still not fully answered. What we mean by fully here, obviously, is giving a historical, scientific, rationalistic approach to everything. There is, however, if you will, a more spiritual answering. There is also an answer, uh, I would say, and I, maybe this is not this is maybe an abstract term, but there is an answer of the heart and of the human experience that needs to be taken into account when approaching these things at the same time that the church hasn't spoken definitively about some of these. Is that right, Doctor? Right. right. Which, which enables us and allows us... Yeah, to yeah. consider, to continue talking and praying about these things as we approach them. So yeah, just... And what I was going to say before turning it over to doctor for a final remark is that that like, thanks be to God that that's the case, that some sure. of these things are open. Why? Because, I mean, we've been talking about Pope Benedict on this, on this episode and we talked about it on the one we did on him, but he's got that famous quote, Christianity is not the result of a lofty choice or an ethical idea, but the result of an encounter with, with an event, person. with a person, right? Yeah. So like... Scripture is the, I mean, it's God's word to us. And if it were just like cut and dry, like we could systematically come up to ev like get every answer. That's not how it is in sure. human relationships. Like I can't just like categorize you and figure you out and then boom, I know Max. It's no. like, we don't no, even know ourselves. Like exactly. That's part of the, like, like we yeah. have to like relationships were meant to dot, like be drawn deeper in, like they're, they're open-ended by nature. So it makes sense that our relationship with the word of God is like that. And yeah. Um, and that's, that's an okay thing. When you encounter a passage of scripture, yes, the church gives us ways to interpret it, principles to abide by, but with very few passages, does the church actually give us the interpretation? Yep. And that's because she wants us to be drawn further and further into the mystery, into the relationship. So um, I think that's pretty cool. And this conversation has helped me appreciate that more. Me too. Dr. Ramage, do you have any, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any... Um, 
closing remarks before we yeah, finish. Just piggyback up on what you said, make a couple quick comments. One is another Ratzinger line is Christianity is not a system. And mm. that is a particular temptation in our age to have everything fit in a nice box. And that's just not Christianity because like Joey was saying, it's not that the case with any relationship. You want to have answers. Sure. Yes, you need enough and you need enough stability but ultimately, the other point I'm going to draw in is St. Augustine. He says that God allows difficulties that you don't resolve for your own humility to <laughs> bow before the mystery. And Augustine, no more than anyone else, uses that as an excuse to be lazy, just right. say have blind faith. <laughs> but, right. you know, he writes books on Genesis, for example. But um, there is that, right? That if I got up here in a podcast and I told you, here is the interpretation of each of these passages. That's just lying for starters. Mm, But also it goes back to that Chestertonian image of the playground. The the, the, the catechism doesn't define these. You're not going to have your divine judgment or your creed and its profession dependent on these passages. But at the same time, it's important because the more you know someone, the more you want to love them and vice versa. And for evangelization, right? It's like, sure. you've got to be able to have a reason for the hope within you that your guys' podcast mm-hmm. is really cool for helping people with. So yeah, I, I'm grateful to have had the conversation. Obviously, we could keep going, but I I have some diapers to change probably or something like <laughs> nice. that. Nice. Yeah. I yeah. think Joey's got a diaper to change too. Joey, <laughs> yeah, yeah. get over here, buddy. Oh, it's been a while. <laughs> okay. Let's take it easy. All right. Let's take All it right. Easy. Doctor, thank you for coming on to the the podcast, the Sumble Podcast. Thank you for accepting our offer. Uh, we hope, listeners, that you've gained something from this discussion. Um, yeah, maybe we'll put links to Doctor sure. Ramage's stuff. Yeah. I mean, keep an eye. do you have any? Are you writing any books right now? Are you working on anything in particular? Uh, I'm working on something on creation and covenant and uh, and mm. care for the natural world. But the most recent thing I did, my big multi year project was uh, From the Dust of the Earth, Benedict XVI, The Bible and the Theory of Evolution. There's a lot of darkness, nice. a lot of challenges people face there. But yeah, if you mm-hmm. put links, great. That one and my one on living the Christian moral life, uh, the experiment sure. of faith and and that. So yeah, that's uh, always great. But it's, it's a joy to be working in this area. Thank you, Doctor. Thank yeah. you for coming on. Thanks. God bless your family. Yeah, thanks for your service to the church yeah. as a theologian, as a biblical scholar. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, absolutely, Doctor. God bless you. Guys, thank you for tuning into this episode of Logos Podcast. We hope you learned something. We hope that these discussions brought you closer to our Lord, which is the object of everything that we do in this platform. And as always, God bless. <laughs>